The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It was July 1st, the start of the July 4th weekend, 1977, in New Orleans. In the then predominantly white, working-class Ninth Ward, two black men approached the Welcome Inn bar requesting two beers to go, and the owner obliged, believing that she had recognized the shorter of the pair from the neighborhood. They grabbed the cans of beer and then forced their way in at gunpoint, demanding money from the register as well as from the intoxicated patrons, one of whom, Cecil Lloyd, was fatally shot. The assailants set their beer cans down on the bar, leaving their fingerprints behind. The police began their investigation casting a wide net, considering all the local black men as potential suspects, including a young man named Elvis Brooks, who had previously been wrongfully arrested for a 1974 robbery and attempted murder. When three of the surviving witnesses identified Elvis from a photo array and again in court, it must have seemed to the jury that his parade of 13 alibi witnesses were perjuring themselves to save Elvis from prison. But this is wrongful conviction. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, I have a case out of New Orleans, and it's a case of cross-racial misidentification, which, as you know, in study after study, has been found and proven to be even less accurate than guessing. And with us to discuss the case is the man himself, Elvis Brooks, who did over four decades in Angola Penitentiary. Elvis, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, uh, Mr. Jason. And joining Elvis is one of his post-conviction attorneys. She's the supervising attorney for Case Development at Innocence Project New Orleans, also known as IPNO. Sherelle Arnold, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. So this is Orleans Parish, 1970s. We've covered several other cases from this era, both in Orleans Parish and elsewhere in the surrounding areas. Bobby Jean Johnson, Vincent Simmons, Malcolm Alexander where it seems like the state was running more of a kidnapping racket than anything resembling justice or public safety. 
Orleans Parish has been really challenged for a long time in terms of the administration of the criminal legal system, how Orleans Parish has treated people of color and particularly its Black residents. In 1977, Mr. Brooks lived in an area that was primarily white. His family was one of the only Black families who lived there. Honestly, that was part of the reason that he was targeted for this crime. This was an area that was very like white working class back then. The Lower Ninth Ward, of course, would become an area that was a largely Black area, obviously, by the time Hurricane Katrina came. So this was an area that was really kind of on the cusp of, frankly, I think many white residents believed something dangerous. But in actuality, was an area where Black families would eventually become homeowners and grow a really vibrant neighborhood. So Many of the witnesses, I imagine in this case, or people who lived around there, would later be part of the white flight of white residents of Orleans Parish who left to the suburbs. And this is a phenomenon we saw all over the country in this era with white residents fleeing to suburbia. Talking Brooklyn, Detroit, and of course, New Orleans. And Elvis, you grew up in that fraught time. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? I was one of 12 kids, five boys and seven girls. I was the middle boy, you know. I had a normal kid life, you know. I went to school, and I had two of the best parents in the world. Yeah, they'd have to be. I mean, 12 kids is no small feat. I can't even imagine. That's in some superhero category, and it must have been hard for them to keep you all in line. I was a bad little kid. I ain't going to lie. <laughs> You know, uh, my daddy, he used to have to come to school quite a bit for me and my brother. Young teenagers, you know, acting crazy, you know, fighting, jaw ride, you know, um, shooting, hooking, all that. But we ain't never hurt anyone, you know. Now, joyriding was a bit of a raucous teenage trend back then where you'd steal a car for a short period of time with the intention of returning it or abandoning it unnoticed, which it's foolishness for sure, but it's certainly not murder. But I can also imagine that the joy rides at least piss people off, right? I, I think he could have been upsetting some people. I think these were crimes that, frankly, white teenagers were committing that people did just call joy rides, right? And they weren't getting arrested or they weren't getting threatened. Me and my partner, my brother, we'd be hanging out there, you know, just hanging out, you know. And the police would come threaten us, you know. You know, uh, y'all don't get off the street. We're going to arrest y'all, you know, we'll put some charges on y'all, you know. We were being young. We ain't take them serious, you know. So since you had this reputation as a troublemaker, they would threaten you with bogus charges to enforce some sort of an unofficial curfew that they made just for you. And it turns out that you should have taken those threats seriously. Now, This wasn't the detective in the case we're here to discuss today, but this guy did do something that put you in jeopardy for this case. There was a robbery turned homicide in your neighborhood at a bakery, and one night he made his usual threat to get you off the street that you didn't take that seriously, but this time it got a bit more real for you, right? Yes, in 1974, the detective put a robbery and attempt murder charge on me. I was 17. I didn't even know that robbery happened, you know. Uh, it happened on St. Claude and uh, Treacle. That was about seven blocks away from where I live, you know. And uh, he, he stopped me three times altogether. He told me if he ever catch me on the street again, he's going to bring me up to jail for that, for that charge, you know. Third time he saw me out there, he arrested me, you know. 
and uh, brought me to my parents' house and told my parents, you know, I know Elvis didn't have anything to do with this, but I got to teach him a lesson. I said, I'm going to arrest him. I'm going to book him. I'm going to put him on the lineup. He ain't going to get uh, identified because he didn't do this here, but I got to teach him a lesson. I was fingerprinted, and I had a mug, you know, mug shot. You know, I went on the lineup, and I was out. When they arrest me on this case here, that's all they talked about was that uh, 1974 case, you know. So this detective trying to show you tough love as if that was in his job description put you permanently on the docket ready to be sold off and shipped off to Angola. So three years later, that's exactly what happened. Sherelle, can you describe the events of July 1st, 1977 at a bar in the Ninth Ward called the Welcome Inn that resulted in the fatal shooting death of a man named Cecil Lloyd? Sure. So this crime, I believe it was a Friday night, but it was just the start of basically the 4th of July weekend. And the bar was a small neighborhood bar, tiny place, not a lot of room to move around. There was a few patrons left and I think one or two people working the bar. As far as we can tell, these patrons had been drinking all day, (laughs) right? They were having a good time enjoying the weekend. Two black men come to the door And this was a bar that I think was primarily a a white bar, but everyone who worked there was white. The owner was white. As far as I'm aware, the patrons were all white. Two black men come to the door and the owner says that they asked for beers to go. And she says that she opened the door to get them the beers because she recognized one of the men from the neighborhood. She hands them the beers and then they push in the door. But importantly to Mr. Brooks's case, they set their beer on the bar top, just a couple steps inside the bar, and they basically commence a robbery. So they empty the cash register. They demand everyone get down on the ground. There's sort of a lead robber and kind of the supporting robber. One of them is armed with a gun, or at least one of them is the one who, who fires the fatal shot. I believe only one shot is fired. And sadly, Mr. Lloyd is killed, seemingly for no reason. Mr. Lloyd complied, just like everyone else. So this must have scared the living shit out of everyone in that bar. Lloyd complied and still got killed. So all bets were off. But these two men leave. And of course, the cops are called in. What did the victim say to the police? They take witness statements from everybody. We now know that these statements differed quite a bit from one another in many ways. By the time of trial, the statements would become remarkably more consistent. But that night, the witnesses give sort of general descriptions of the men. We know they were both black. They give a variety of different clothing descriptions, a variety of hair descriptions. We know that one is short and one is tall. Mr. Brooks was eventually convicted of being the shorter of the two robbers, who is the shooter. Right. It's my understanding that the shorter of the two assailants was about 5'4". Yeah, 5'4", about 140 pounds. I was 5'8", about 140-something pounds. And they say he had had short hair, but I had a big old afro. The shorter robber. I think it may have also technically been an afro, but Mr. Brooks's hair was like much bigger. You know, Mr. Brooks, he he could be described as short, but the hairstyles that the witnesses described just didn't match Mr. Brooks. So we're seeing a marked difference in height as well as length of hair. So how does Elvis even get dragged into the consciousness 
of these victims. The bar owner, Ms. Caruso, the woman who chose to let the men into the bar, she believes that she recognized the shorter robber from the neighborhood. And in the end, this is really the only connection that Mr. Brooks has to this case, is that his family was a Black family who lived in the neighborhood. Beyond that, police have nothing to go on. So what detectives do, and we know this from the police files that we've been able to obtain, is that they basically just started getting lists of Black men who lived in the neighborhood. Jesus Christ. And so there are just lists and lists, frankly, of men who could have been wrongfully convicted for this crime, right? If it wasn't Mr. Brooks, it almost certainly would have been someone else on one of these lists. Interestingly, when police create these lists, Elvis Brooks isn't on them. We don't know exactly what police did with these lists. It seems as though they may have gotten photos of some of these people and tried to show the robbery victims. These photos, we we don't know for sure. There's not great documentation on this. But for several weeks, police don't have a suspect in this case. They are basically, all they have to go on is a Black man who maybe lives in the neighborhood or has been in the neighborhood at some point. And so this is how randomly, right, coincidentally, despite having gotten these lists of people, Mr. Brooks's name isn't on them. Suddenly, from reading the police report, one of the police officers would have you believe that he suddenly came came to mind a suspect that matched the description who lived in the neighborhood, and that was Elvis Brooks. I mean, it sounds like a sinister game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo, right? And this is why we must remind people that Black Lives Matter because to these people, they simply don't. So even though he's four inches taller than the shooter, has a big afro, unlike the shooter, they still put Elvis's photo in an array to show to the victims. I don't know that it's even like multiple photos on one piece of paper. They just have photos. And one of those photos is of Elvis Brooks. But it's not a photo from 1977. It's a photo from several years before, right? When Mr. Brooks had been arrested previously. And so they take this old photo where his hair looks differently, right? Because it was two years previously. His hair is much shorter in this photo than his hair was in 1977. He hadn't cut his hair in between because it was an afro that he was letting grow out. And so they take this old photo to the witnesses from the bar. But because it's the same photo, when a witness signed the back of it, right, sometimes when you sign things, you can tell that there's writing on the back of something. So it's certainly possible that as they're showing the photo to the witnesses from the bar, it's very obvious which photo has been identified. So not only is the photo lineup suggestive because of the signature on the back, but also the photo of Elvis from 1974 more closely met the description of the actual assailant in 1977 than Elvis did in that same year. This is also a situation where you have three fully traumatized victims. So not exactly a room full of people with clear heads. And the victims were white. The assailants were black, and we have to go back to this important point, which is that study after study has shown that cross-racial identification, it's less accurate than guessing. So they got three cross-racial identifications from two patrons, Mr. Noto, Ms. Cipriani, and the bar owner, Ms. Caruso. But they didn't have to go down 
the identification route, right? What about the fingerprints? They're right there on the beer cans. Correct. The police got to the scene and they knew exactly what would be probative to fingerprint in this scene. This isn't a case where they were fingerprinting the ceiling or something like that. They knew that the robbers had touched these beer cans and that they had then set those beer cans on the bar top. And so they collected those cans as evidence and they were able to get usable prints that they could compare to Mr. Brooks's prints. And what we now know and what police and what the district attorney in 1977 knew as they were trying to kill Mr. Brooks, right, to prosecute him capitally, was that the fingerprints on those beer cans didn't match Elvis Brooks. We don't know whose they were, but we know they didn't belong to Mr. Brooks. So they got these fingerprints. They knew that they didn't match Elvis, but yet they decided to go ahead and pursue the death penalty anyway. Let's just marinate on that for a second. That sounds like state-sanctioned attempted murder. Needless to say, if these folks were civilians, they'd be charged and punished accordingly. But our system has decided that these people have special privileges, including the right to kill for the advancement of their careers with no recompense. And this was the notorious Harry Connick senior era. So this sort of behavior was the norm, even from the junior ADA who was trying the case. So they ignored the beer can fingerprints that they knew to be from the actual assailants. No question about it. And they got an arrest warrant for Elvis instead. And I was at work that day, you know, when I got home, my sister said, the police were looking at you for you. I said, for what? They said, you killed somebody. I said, kill somebody? I said, I ain't never killed nobody. Then I went to the phone booth, called a fifth priest, and, you know, asked him, was he looking for Elvis Brooks? And they said, yeah. They said, where you at? I said, I'm on payphone of St. Claude and Foster. That way they came and got me right there, you know. We'll be right back after this. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. I had to go to get bond set. That's the first thing I went to, which I didn't have any bond because it was a first-degree murder. So after that, they went into the motion for identification. Brought me the code, so I feel like... I know I didn't do it. I said, shit, I said, these people here ain't going to say I done it. Because I know I didn't do it. I said, they got the wrong person, you know. When I go in the courtroom for a motion for identification, one of them said he positive it wasn't me, you know. Because the DA came and printed at me. See, this ain't the man. He said, no, I'm positive. That ain't the man. And uh, the two ladies, you know, they said it was me, you know. But when I came back to trial, that man had changed his mind, you know, and said it was me, you know. So Joseph Noto, when he went to court for the motion to suppress identifications, he essentially couldn't recognize if the man he had identified in the photo, 
if that was the same man who was in court. Someone who can't even look at a photo and say if it's the same person as someone sitting in front of them shouldn't be considered to be reliable evidence against someone. Yet somehow something helped him come around by the time of trial to make the identification. At trial, the evidence against Mr. Brooks is three cross-racial stranger identifications. At least two of the witnesses were quite a bit older than Mr. Brooks. It can be more difficult to identify someone who's of a different age than you are. We most recognize people who look more like us. It's just easier for people to remember. And then also, these people had been drinking for hours in a dark bar. They were terrified. They were being told to lie down on the ground. Someone had just been shot seemingly randomly. And this is a very quick situation. And so they've had only a few minutes to look at a person they've never seen before and to identify them after they've been drinking, some of them seemingly for hours. And then there's a fourth witness presented at trial in addition to the other three we've already mentioned. The fourth person is actually, he's the, he's, <laughs> he's the victim who can't identify anyone. He describes the circumstances of the crime and agrees, you know, in many ways with the other witnesses, but he could never make an identification of Mr. Brooks. And so this was the evidence against Elvis Brooks. No physical evidence ever tied him to the crime. And in fact, the fingerprints, right, made it very clear that he was not one of the robbers. So what the hell is this? How is it that the defense did not bring this up? His lawyer didn't mention the fingerprints because he wasn't told about the fingerprints. The police, right, they had gathered the evidence. They had tested the evidence. They knew about the evidence. We know that the assistant district attorney in this case knew about the evidence because of notes we would later find in the DA file. Mr. Brooks's attorney was never told that there were fingerprints exonerating his client. But in this trial that lasted only a few hours, Mr. Brooks's attorney fought. He presented witness after witness after witness, all demonstrating Elvis Brooks's alibi for that night. Mr. Brooks also testified on his own behalf, right? He told the jury that he was innocent, that he didn't do this. In total, the jury chose to believe four white witnesses who had been drinking in a dimly lit bar over 13 black witnesses who described almost to a T the alibi that Mr. Brooks had that night. They all explained how they had come to be at the Brooks house that evening, what they were doing, the time periods they were there, what they saw Elvis doing. These were people who, yes, many of them were related to Mr. Brooks, though not all of them. But these were also people who just, frankly, they corroborated one another, not in a perfect way, right? Not everyone had been there for the exact same time period that night, but they were clear as to what Mr. Brooks had been wearing, which wasn't the clothing described as the robber was wearing, what his hair had looked like, and what he had been doing. And they were all clear that in this small shotgun-style house, which, right, it's a house that it has one entrance and one exit. It's very clear when someone leaves a shotgun house, you can't sneak out. They knew that Mr. Brooks had been there all night. He couldn't possibly be the robber. And yet, these black voices were ignored. I had uh, my brother. He come over there with his friend. And my sister, she come over there with her boyfriend. And she had her three kids with her. I'm the one who opened the door for them, you know? 
Fourth of July was coming up, and uh, they wanted to come visit my mama and daddy. You know, you know, I might have been a bad little kid, but my mom and daddy they were very honest people. You know, even if it meant I had to have the death penalty, they wasn't gonna lie for me. You know. After this very short proceeding, three cross-racial misidentifications were made, but 13 alibi witnesses swore that you were with them instead. And your life was literally hanging in the balance. Did you still hold out hope that the jury was going to believe your parents and your family? You know what, at that time, I was young. Like I said, I didn't take life serious then, you know. But uh, I was saying to myself, I didn't do this. I mean, I'm going to. I'm not going to get convicted, you know, because I didn't do it, you know. But when I got convicted, I learned the hard way just how much people hate other people. You want to get somebody, get the right person that done it, you know. Don't come just snatching on anybody. That just made me look at people different. I learned the hard way. I'll never forget it, though. We'll be right back after a quick break. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. A week later, they uh, sentenced me to life. In 50 years, and they go. And after that, a few months later, I was in Angola. For the next 40 some years. They put you in the field, you know, working like a slave, picking cotton, digging dishes, picking corn, doing quarter grains, cutting grass, you know, stuff like that. I really wasn't familiar with those things that, you know, so I just had to get used to it. When I first went there, I was getting write-ups, you know? So when Mr. Brooks was sentenced to life in prison, the sentence he only got because his mother begged the jurors to spare her son from the death penalty, 
he was sent to Angola Penitentiary, right? The Louisiana State Penitentiary, where he got reprimands for essentially not doing hard labor fast enough or with sufficient enthusiasm for the hard labor he was assigned. They were locked in a hole in the dungeon. Yes, sir. And back then, uh, they'll give you extra duty. You know, something you got to do on the weekends, go in the field on the weekends. Or they might give you a isolation time, which is 10 days, you know, with all the mattress and all that. They never even tried to hide the fact that mass incarceration was just what slavery morphed into after the Civil War. And they still aren't. Louisiana just did have the opportunity, as four other states did, who all passed it, to remove the slavery loophole of the 13th Amendment from the state constitution by ballot initiative. That was in November 2022, but they voted to keep it. Yeah. And it was the voters uh, uh, voted this way by a comfortable margin, which is, um, I don't have the right words for it. Anyway, it wasn't bad enough for your mom to lose you, but your brother was in Angola with you. Yeah, he, he, he was up, up there in Angola with me. He got killed, you know. His name was Errol Brooks. He got killed in 1981. I'm sorry to hear that. So I understand they tried to get a friend of yours, too, to shoe him in for the taller shooter in 1978, and this was a guy named Alvin Keller. Alvin Keller? They say the second man was something like six feet or six one. And Keller was same height as me, you know. They tried to arrest him, but uh, Keller said, "Man, I was uh, I was locked up when that happened, you know." Then they check and see it was real. Then they uh, let him go, but no, they ain't never arrest anyone else, you know. So luckily for him, he was able to use their own words against them to escape being another statistic, another wrongfully convicted black man in Louisiana at the time and then being forced onto that horrible conveyor belt of free labor that fuels this system. You were making two to four cents an hour in the fields. It's the amount of money that makes it impossible to save up so that if you wanted, like Mr. Brooks did, to try to get information about his case, postage costs money, right? Envelopes, paper cost money in prison. Documents certainly cost money. And when you're talking about making that little and having a family that though they supported him as best they could, they, they just weren't in a position to support him financially like that. And so it leads to a situation where people are desperate to try to get information about their cases, right? And they have virtually no tools to do so. And so for years, Mr. Brooks struggled, right, to try to litigate his case pro se, meaning without a lawyer, because in Louisiana... Once he wasn't given a death sentence, he was no longer entitled. He wasn't entitled to some sort of post-conviction counsel, right? He did get to take an out-of-time appeal. It was denied. But those sorts of things, that's not going to reveal any new evidence. That's just going to review what occurred actually at the trial itself. And so for years, Mr. Brooks was just left alone to try to manage as best he could, to try to scrape together the money to get documents, to try to get information about right? What he always knew, that he wasn't the robber. He knew he didn't do that crime. And he was certain that there would be something in those files to prove it, but he just couldn't get to them. But you got crafty, right? When you weren't out in the fields, I understand you actually started making belts, like with your own hands from scratch. They had a place they called a hobby shop. Belts were my personal uh, items, you know. We order our own leather. We make our own products and we sell them, you know. 
So that's why I got in the hobby shop. I went to making belts. I could sell belts and support myself. So you worked on your appeals pro se. And so on your own, using the belt business in order to make enough money just to get postage and paper documents and try to fight the state in post-conviction. Of course, you're fighting against them with their unlimited resources. Yes, sir. And all of them got denied. But what really helped me and a bunch of other people when uh, the DA files, when they made that uh, possible for us to have, you know, the Supreme Court said we were entitled to it. That's opened a lot of doors for people. Because when you get that, you get the information that can help you. Something that you weren't entitled to at one time. The DA files. That's how I found out about the bill cans, fingerprints, DA files. Well, that was way later. In the teens. Wow, so you went in in 1977 and didn't find out about the fingerprints until well after 2012. So when did the Innocence Project of New Orleans get involved and how did this thing turn around? Basically, as soon as he heard about IPNO, which we were founded in 2001, he wrote to us and asked for help, but so did thousands of other people. And right, we're only one office. And so as best we can, right, we work through cases. And unfortunately, and I, I'm... I'm so sad that Mr. Brooks had to wait even longer for Ipno's help, but we were finally able to start looking at the case around, I believe 2016 was when I first wrote to him. And Ipno, Innocence Project New Orleans, of course, is an incredible organization. And they have done a ton of good in a place that has an insane backlog and a, just a tortured history of these kind of cases. We're talking, of course, about the most incarcerated state in the country, almost always. Sometimes Oklahoma takes their place, they flip-flop, but Louisiana, it's the most incarcerated state in the most incarcerated country in the world. So the task that they face, the uphill battle that they fight every day, no matter the year, it's daunting to say the least. So if you listeners can help them with a dollar, a hundred dollars, a hundred million dollars, whatever you got laying around, we'll have a link in the bio to IPNO. And I hope our audience will be driven to get involved and help other people like Mr. Brooks. So when IPNO finally did get involved, what did that investigation look like? So in the post-conviction process, one of the things we do to investigate is use the public records laws and request documents. And we were able to write, go look at them, pick them up, pay for them, decide what you want to pay for, what you don't. That's something that people who are incarcerated often can't do. Though in Mr. Brooks's case, he actually had a sister who was really moved by what happened to her brother, and she wanted to join the police force to make sure that didn't happen to another Black family. And she unfortunately was injured and so had to eventually resign the force. But during the time that she was there at NOPD, she tried to look in the record for documents about her brother's case, and she couldn't find them. She was told that they were too old, that they probably didn't have them anymore. So this is something where even someone who should be an insider, right, who's trying to help her brother, trying to do these things, and even as an NOPD officer was being told that these documents didn't exist. But as you've heard before, this fingerprint evidence that should have stopped this train before it even left the station did actually exist. Unfortunately, in this case, we were actually never able to find the physical fingerprints. It seems as though they were lost or, frankly, possibly destroyed. We found handwritten notes 
that it turns out we learned were written by the assistant district attorney saying Prince, not Elvis Brooks, right? That was written on a notation next to a discussion of the fingerprints on the beer cans. And so when we saw that, we thought, wow, what, you know, what do you mean? Let's find these fingerprints. Whose fingerprints are they? And unfortunately, because of how NOPD conducted its fingerprinting back then, if they didn't find a match, if they didn't get an ID to someone, they just didn't record it, right? Back in 1970s, if NOPD tested someone's fingerprints, compared the fingerprints, and it wasn't that person, often they just didn't write a report because they thought, well, this is of no use, <laughs> right? They thought if it wasn't their suspect, what good would it do? The same with if they showed a photo to someone and they didn't make an identification, very often they would not write a report documenting that because it wasn't helpful to their case. And so in this case, there was no fingerprint report to find. There was just these notes that happened to document that the prints did not belong to Elvis Brooks. So we conducted an extensive search for these prints down in like the bowels of the NOPD building, right? Looking for this evidence. And despite many, many hours of searching, we weren't actually able to find their fingerprints, which is sad because we could have found out who the real robbers were, right? We could have actually solved this case and gotten a little justice for Mr. Lloyd. And unfortunately, because of the evidence retention practices, we just weren't able to do that either. But we were able to file on Mr. Brooks's behalf based on some of this new evidence. There was also some other undisclosed evidence about another crime committed that night by people who seemed to match the description and that was committed right around the corner that Mr. Brooks was also never told about, um, his lawyers never learned about. And so unfortunately, what we know about what happened the night the welcome in was robbed is probably only a sliver of what investigators actually found out back then. But because they didn't document it, we're left to sort of follow the breadcrumbs. And those breadcrumbs led to two conclusions, that they had prosecuted Elvis knowing that he was innocent and that Elvis needed to be released ASAP. So how did the state respond? We were met with procedural objections by the state. It's not enough to find new evidence in your case. Before you could get any court to listen to your new evidence, to consider the merits of your claims, you have to prove that you basically meet the procedural hurdles. We had to demonstrate that this information had been withheld from Mr. Brooks and his attorney. Unfortunately, Mr. Brooks's attorney was deceased. And so we had to try to come up with other ways to show that he obviously didn't know this information about the fingerprints, that had he known, right, this attorney who put on 13 witnesses, which was just unheard of in 1977, that had he known that the fingerprints on critical items didn't match his client, he obviously would have mentioned that to the jury. And once the state was forced to look at Elvis's case, they must have realized what had happened. And this was the Leon Canizaro administration still. So instead of doing the right thing, on the eve of an October 15, 2019 hearing, they brought Elvis a deal. They were asking that you plead guilty to a lesser charge and avoid a potentially very lengthy procedural battle, which would have cost you much more time. It might have even led to you dying in prison. But was that decision a struggle for you? Yeah, I struggled with it because I always say, I said, I ain't going to never say guilty to this here, you know, because I didn't do it. I'm not going to never plead guilty. But I went to thinking when I was offered a deal, 
I said, man, you got to use common sense sometime, you know, because you may not ever get out of here. I just wanted to get out, you know, because I know I didn't do it. And I feel like 42 plus years was long enough, you know. I just made a decision, you know, that uh, I'm going to plead guilty to a lesser charge and get out, you know. It was tough, but uh, oh, my whole family said I did the right thing, you know. Because they wanted to see me out. That's why I went on and took the plea bargain. I mean, we call it a choice, but in some ways that's not really a fair um, assessment. It turns out later, and we found out that the state was also aware at the time they offered him, right, that supposed choice, that they knew that the trial prosecutor hadn't turned over those prints. They knew that because he told them frankly, probably to avoid liability, though I can only guess as to their motives. But they found that out in a meeting with the trial prosecutor. And shortly thereafter, within days, they offered Mr. Brooks a plea. So despite the sour taste in your mouth over having to plead guilty to get out, you were still free and back into the arms of your family. How did that feel after all these years? Wow. It felt great, you know. I really couldn't believe it, <laughs> you know. Feel real great to be out, you know. Be around my family, my kids, my grandkids, my brothers, sisters, nephew, nieces. Only thing I was missing my parents, you know, because they deceased now. So, but it's a it's a wonderful feeling to to be getting out and going, especially everybody telling me congratulations, you know, when I was leaving. That was a good feeling there, you know? So he was out, but that was not the end of it. And I can't stress this enough. Elections matter, folks, okay? Especially the local ones. The Connick and Canizaro eras left a harmful legacy in their wake. And even though Leon Canizaro was not seeking re-election, Jason Williams was elected to the Orange Parish DA's office. And we interviewed Jason on my other podcast, Righteous Convictions. We're going to have that episode linked in the bio, by the way that having a man of his caliber, I'm going to say it now, a great man like Jason Williams in that office means people like Elvis can finally get justice and have their names cleared. He has cleared his name. Yeah, earlier this year, Mr. Brooks, represented by a different attorney in a different office, did file another application for post-conviction relief seeking to withdraw his guilty plea and seeking to have his conviction overturned. And so that was granted this year, meaning that at this point, Mr. Brooks is fully exonerated as much as you can be in the criminal legal system. And in fact, the day that Mr. Brooks was able to go into court, that was decided the ADA at that time made it very clear and apologized to him for all those years that were taken from him wrongfully and acknowledged his innocence. The the district attorneys, they admit to wrong, Don. You know, they say they withheld evidence, you know. They couldn't clear my name years ago, you know. And uh, they asked me how long I stood. I said 42 plus years, you know, I was locked up, you know. It was great to get that done, you know. Like I said, I was one vote away from the death penalty. They took my whole youth from me. It took the best years of my life, you know? And nothing could ever replace it. You, you have my deepest sympathies for that. And we'll have action steps for our audience if they'd like to help you. 
by that I mean there's an Amazon wish list and a freedom fund. So if you've got the wherewithal to do it, then please do help. It means a lot. And with that, we now turn to the closing of our show, which of course is called Closing Arguments. And it's the part of the show that I always look forward to. It's where I get to turn off my mic. That's not why I look forward to it. It's because of what we're about to hear. Because when I turn my mic off, I'm going to leave your mics on so that you can share any closing thoughts. That's why it's called Closing Arguments with me and our audience. Thank you again. Sherelle, why don't we start with you first and then Elvis, please take us out into the sunset. You know, I really appreciate you having us and for letting Mr. Brooks share a little bit of what happened to him. And I think in some ways, this case is extraordinary in that every time I look at a new file, I hope that we're going to find something as sort of earth shattering as the physical evidence in Mr. Brooks's case. It's fingerprints, but in many ways, it's more akin almost to a DNA exoneration, right? This isn't just a he said, she said, this is this tangible evidence didn't match. And they do, it didn't match. And they framed Elvis Brooks anyways. And they did it because they could. And it's a system where, could they do it again today? Sure. I, I think I think they could. And so a lot of it is just about, to me, how little thought anyone gave to what they were doing. They did it because they could. They did it because it was easy. Maybe they thought Mr. Brooks was a troublemaker. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. I don't care. Frankly, it doesn't make it right. He was a poor black boy who didn't have the means to defend himself and they did it because they could i'm just i'm just so happy to be among the free people again you know i mean after 42 plus years you know my health not really good right now but you know i'm alive you know i'm, I'm out here with my family you know like i said all this people I'm missing with my mom and dad because they passed, you know, but everything else is good, you know, and uh, I appreciate whatever y'all could do, you know, prayers and all that, you know, we need that, you know. Look at this, this, the way this world coming to right now, it's ridiculous, you know. I'd like to just thank y'all, thank the Anderson Project, thank everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Plum. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 